intense. And then because you're so wasted, I didn't want to go home and go to sleep. I wanted to go to the bar. So we went downtown after the game and man, something happened. I don't know what happened. That was the last time that I went to a bar it was uh, me and my friend got separated. And I remember going to the bar, ordering another drink. And then I got really dizzy. And then I kind of remember blips, right? I remember little bits and pieces. Um, but what happened was I ended up, uh, I woke up sandwiched between a garbage bin and a wall behind the bar. So in the alley. Um, and when I woke up, I felt like my, I just got my ass rolled. Like I had bruises all over. Um, I fucking didn't even want to take a deep breath cause I didn't know. Ugh, yeah. Anyways, I kind of got up and I stumbled out into the alley and I fell again. the show Courtney thanks so much for having me I'm so excited so you're from your company Canada yeah from Edmonton Alberta no shit I love not knowing that about people before I go Nicole that is my second and <laughs> the Oilers my second favorite hockey team no way we're best friends already <laughs> yeah um I talked to another girl from Canada before and I was saying she was a Toronto fan and I'm, I'm a Flyers fan you know born and raised 10 minutes from Philly and um, but it's ironic that I'm I'm an Oilers fan since like the first Stanley Cup I was alive for was 1987 when the Oilers beat the Flyers yeah, in the Stanley Cup. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I got my McDavid and Gretzky jersey at home and hanging up, and it's the old Blues, not the new Blues, oh, that yeah. I I have both. Like my McDavid jersey is so old that it doesn't even have a C on it yet. Oh, really? Yeah, that's how long ago I bought that McDavid jersey. Oh, yeah. um, just Black to give you a reference. <laughs> that I think that's the best point of reference to anybody in Edmonton watching this right now, is mm-hmm. that that proves I'm a real fan, is that I've had that jersey before there was a C sewn on, because I can't imagine seeing it without a C on it by now oh, with the last few years. Exactly. So, you well, know. That's amazing. I love that. <laughs> so, we'll get, like I said, we're going to go on rants, and I can't help but talk about hockey sometimes. No, that's all good. That's all good. Um, no, but I, okay. So, that's awesome. I love that shit. That's so cool. I'm so happy about that. You know, <laughs> my wife's going to be, she's right now, she's watching us. She's laughing at me being a kid. <laughs> there's my little, like, nerdiness about it. Anyway, what is your sober date, Courtney? The real reason you're here. <laughs> yeah. So, sober date is October 10th, 2016. Oh, that's my brother's birthday. Like, no way. Yeah. So, There's lots of synchronicities here. I love that. <laughs> I know. He was turning 27 and you were getting sober. So what was happening in Courtney's life October 9th, 2016? Um, so in Canada, like our Thanksgiving is different than your guys's. So that's yeah. Thanksgiving weekend. Um, and I had gotten to a point where I was using cocaine and drinking uh, because the booze wasn't doing it for me anymore. Um, So I was partying with friends and just dying inside. I was suicidal. Um, I had a good job. Like I was the functioning, right? I never thought I had a problem because I had a job and I was paying my bills. Um, But it would just be Monday to Friday, right? And then party the whole weekend. And then Monday would come around and I would hate myself and I would say, I'm never friggin' doing that again. Um, and by Wednesday, I deserve a break. Like I need to 
relax, whatever. And um, so, yeah, like booze would always lead to cocaine, but I didn't even start doing blow until I was 27. There's um, so many people right now that are like not in their head about <laughs> alcohol leads to blow. Like yeah. I, there are so, like, I, I don't think I could even do coke without alcohol. Like, you know, like uh-huh. they, they go hand in hand right. so well together. And I think that's, I don't know if it's for a reason or if it's just coincidental, but like I used to go to CA meetings in California. Um, when I first got sober, CA, Cocaine Anonymous is huge in LA. So I was going to a bunch of meetings for C. I was going to any meeting. Let's be honest. I was going to CA, AA, NA. I just needed to be around people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd be going to CA meetings, and they use the big book. They use the AA big book. They're right. literally in their steps. They're all about AAs and alcohol. Like so, even CA Cocaine Anonymous is like, oh no, if you're gonna work the steps, you gotta do them with alcohol too because it is both. Yeah, they're <laughs> desperate. <laughs> so you were 27 when you first started Coke. How old were you in 2016? Uh, I was 26. Yeah. No, wait. You were, oh, no. you were, no, if you were. 2016. I was, nah. <laughs> How, what year were you born? 86. So I was Okay. 20, yeah. You were 30. You were 30. Because yeah. I turned oh. 30. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm September 29th, 1986. Oh, nice. Okay. So, um, and I'm March 21st, 86. So okay. Both, so you, yeah. yeah. You get, yeah. You got six months on me and, um, and, but yeah, so that makes sense. You, you would have been 30 years old, um, when you got sober then. So and you, you, to got, rehab, yeah. you got into cocaine though, when you were 27, three years before that. Three years before. Yeah. Let's, and it sucked me in fast. Let's rewind even further. Okay. Um, parents they still together do you have siblings um so my mom and dad are very different people um my mom uh has a smaller family she's really reserved kind empathetic warm loving compassionate um she didn't have any addiction issues my dad on the other hand uh is a very very sick human still um, my dad is a uh, Cree, so he's indigenous. So I belong to, um, the Métis Nation of Alberta. And unfortunately in my, my family and extended relatives, um, there's a lot of interge- intergenerational trauma, um, associated with residential schools, addiction, poverty. Um, and so I don't really know exactly what he went through um but my whole family on my dad's side it's um alcoholism drugs gambling sex addiction everything and so I was exposed to a lot of things at a very young age um our family we loved each other we didn't know any different though um back then I don't know if it was more acceptable or if it just wasn't as talked about where our huge family would just cram into whoever's house and everyone would be drinking, playing guitar, singing. Um, And in the beginning of the night, it was always great. Everybody having a good time, but then everybody's anger fueled by alcohol. The resentments, the resentments come up. I think that the the drink pushes the resentment out. You know what I mean? People. People are holding on to resentments and they hold on to all these grudges 
and then you drink, and then all of a sudden it comes out the other. Like you can't have both in you. You can't have a resentment in you and drink. The drink will push the resentment out, and then you're gonna say the shit that you don't want to say. You know, and that's that. You know, the whole uh, drunk girls' words are sober girls' thoughts. That that's that's why is because you drank and then you pushed the shit out. You can't keep both in. And it's uh, funny looking back, right? Like, you don't know that when you're, like, No, why would six. you? Why would you? Um, but there's so much. Like, I thought my childhood was awesome. I didn't yeah. know my childhood was a little different until I went to rehab and realized my family's not like everybody else's family, right? Um, yeah, and so, now, you oh, mentioned yeah. the schools thing. Now, like, obviously, anybody who reads the news knows what – happens especially in the last like year or so what's been happening in Canada do you want to talk about that does that have anything to do with your tribe definitely like it's um it's not something that affected my dad um like my dad specifically didn't go to residential schools but his that was in your province right it's Uh, all over Canada I I know it's all over but I mean that big one that they found I think was like last June or some shit it was um, over the summertime, and there was like 160 bodies that they found at one time. In Kamloops, BC, so the next province over. Okay. Um, yeah, but my my grandmother, my granny, my cookum, um, her family definitely dealt, like her extended family definitely dealt with the the trauma and the residuals from from that. And I mean, the stories are so horrific that it was just ignored. So. My relatives weren't seen. They weren't heard. It was like they were invisible and they were littered. They were being killed right in front of right in front of people. And um, it was such a double edged sword because the faith um, went hand in hand with it. Right. Because you're going to a Catholic, a Catholic boarding school. Right. So this is God that's doing these things to you. Um and I mean, these kids were literally like dragged, some of them dragged out of their homes, taken away, and some of them were never seen again. So I can't even imagine, like looking back now, I understand my parents were just kids when they had kids, right? And everybody's got their own their own stuff to deal with, but it definitely- And our parents had us in 86, you know, they, they couldn't just Google shit. They couldn't <laughs> just, you know what I mean? And how, my parents had me when they were 23. Um, so they were young also, and, you know, 23 year old, my dad was working two jobs. He wasn't reading books. You know what I mean? He wasn't reading the books. He was just going to figure it out. And he did, you know, he, he he did the best he could, you know, he nailed it with my brother and sister. They're, they're great. They're thriving. You know, they didn't no addiction issues. You know what I mean? Like, and they're doing really well. I was just the first born, the first one through to make the mistakes so my brother and sister can learn what not to do. Um, how, how many siblings did you have? I have a full brother, um, and then um, when my mom got remarried, I have a stepsister and a stepbrother. Um, when did she get remarried? How old were you? I was, well, she, my parents divorced when I was 12, um, because my dad was already in another relationship, so he just kind of, like, transitioned, right? Um, but my mom <coughs> found my stepdad a little while after, because, she, I mean, my dad was an abusive, abusive narcissistic gaslighting manipulation like I I felt like before I went to rehab I could never explain my father to people because they would either think I was crazy or you know like you just can't explain people like that you don't have a relationship with him anymore do you after rehab I finally cut it off I get Um, yeah you you talk about him in the past tense like like he's not here anymore 
Um, uh, yeah. So that's that's how I if you you know that's that that's the sign right there, which yeah. is a good thing that you're subconsciously doing that. By the way, great. still you great art. Still yeah, great. Yeah, it's not. It's not supposed to be easy, you know, but, you know, when we get sober, we have to cut ties with people and Mm -hmm. whether they're family or our best friends, you know, I've had to cut ties with best friends that I was best friends with for 24 years, seven to 31, you know what I mean? Best friends with these guys, they've been through fucking everything together and have to cut ties because it's toxic and I, I can't have myself around that kind of toxicity anymore. Love you to death. Love the memories I have together. I'll always cherish them. I'll mm-hmm. tell stories, and I their stories will live on, you right. know. But and I tell our stories all the time on here. I, I tell stories to my friends and I all the time. I leave out their names for yeah. you know privacy reasons, but still like because a lot of them were like illegal shit we did, you know. Yeah. But like yeah. you know, um, I'll tell the stories. I don't I don't hate that we were friends. I just I can't do it now. It's not right. that I hated you then. It's yeah. not that I hate what we had together. Mm. It's just I I can't do it now. That well, was if they who hurt I was your then. soul more than they help you, then they gotta go. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's kind of like I'm the kind of person where I would let someone abuse me to the point of like as long as they didn't leave me, like you know what I mean. I need to yeah. fix. I need to make them love me, make them stay, make them. Um, and so that was kind of my dad. I felt like he was constantly running away from me and I couldn't get his love. And I was looking for that validation and men and drugs and sex and gambling. Um, and so, yeah, like it was, re- it was really, really hard. My dad is a very, very sick person. So that um, leads me to my next question is when did you discover alcohol? Were you turned off by it? Did it take you a while to discover it? Seeing your dad as a drinker and abusive uh, alcohol, were you like, ah, I don't want to try that? Or were you the opposite where you wanted to try because you needed to escape faster? It started as second nature to me when I was like five or six. Okay. So yeah, not you drinking like, you know, to excess, but walking around at parties and like drinking the piss out of the beer bottles um, like what's wrong? Like, do you know what I mean? Like looking back now, I have a son who's three years old and I'm just like, the times are so different now. You know what I mean? Like our families would be watching hockey cause hockey and beer hand in hand, right. All the time. Yeah. Some, a- most, some Molson and some Oilers. Right. Every two, three days, there's a game, especially in the eighties when we won five cups, right? It's just, Oh, did we? we did. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I haven't won shit since, but you know. <laughs> about that though. <laughs> 06 was kind of close. <laughs> right. But no, 06 was tough for me because I'm also a giant I'm a Brindamore fan. Like oh, yeah. 17's one of my favorite numbers because of Rod Brindamore back in the day and growing up watching the Flyers and Rod Brindamore. And he ended his career winning the cup with Carolina Hurricanes in 06 beating yeah. the Oilers in 06. So that was like kind of a hard one for me because like I love Rod Brindamore so much. And I love the Hurricanes because I love Rod Brindamore and he's the coach. And I lived, I used to live in North Carolina. I used to live like 20 minutes from the stadium. And I used to go to a lot of games there because they were cheap to go to games at the Hurricanes. Oh, Your yeah. fucking stadium is way so expensive. Oh, I've, now, yeah. I've looked into trips. It's one of the best NHL arenas, in my opinion, out there. Yeah. Um Obviously, the brand new one in Seattle, that one's brand new. But that arena that you guys put in there is fucking immaculate. It is yeah. amazing. 
but it's so expensive to go it to a is. game now because of how perfect it is. I know. You know what? I actually have not been to an Oiler game in that building for that reason. Um, I, I went I to the, the Oil Kings, like our juniors, just so I could see it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, um, yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, five or six now. You're already, like, walking around, and, the, you know, the family's watching hockey it's, you know, people are rowdy and watching hockey, you know, drinking and getting rowdy. And you're just like, oh, I'll finish this. I'll finish yeah. this. And I'll finish. Right. Were and, you ca- and you were catching buzzes, obviously, I'm sure. Oh, of course, right? And I, I loved it because all of my cousins, it wasn't just me, right? It was all of us. And yeah, and Americans that never had Canadian beer, it is way stronger. It is. It is, like. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah, I don't. And in just because you buy Molson, like, Canadian beer in America, it is not the same as buying it in Canada, but like, holy, I brought so much beer back from Canada. Don't like close your ears. Like if you're listening uh, from the um, border right. patrol, yeah. uh, border patrol, this did not happen. I made up this story. Um, but in 2009, um, <laughs> when I was coming back from Niagara Falls, yeah, we stopped and we bought so much fucking beer that we brought back with us. Like I remember sneaking in and seeing pineapple. I remember driving back from Niagara Falls in 2009. I'm going to tell a quick story, and then we're going to get back to yours. Don't worry about it. In 2009, (laughs) my friend was turning 21, and he was so upset because he was the last one to turn 21 out of all of us. And his birthday landed on a Monday, and he was like, this is bullshit. No one wants to do anything, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, bro, how about, you know, we're all 21 at the time. I was like, how about we go up to Niagara Falls? It's a nine-hour drive. We'll go up to Niagara Falls on a Friday. We'll party all weekend. And then we'll drive back on Monday because the drinking age is 19. So you'll be able to drink in Canada at 20 years old. And then we'll drive back Monday morning and you'll be 21. Mm -hmm. And he was like, fuck yeah, let's do that. So, you know, we got up there and I mean, it was a shit show, as you can imagine, because this was 2009. This Mm -hmm. was the summer before it changed so that you needed a passport. This oh. was like the last summer that you could do it with just your birth certificate and your social security card. Isn't it crazy that you could do yeah. that? Before? So yeah. it was so easy. And so we partied all weekend. It was a wild weekend, as you can imagine, because Niagara Falls, Canada is fucking wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were we were trying we went to like high time smoke shop to buy a bunch of paraphernalia. Um, but we couldn't find weed to save our life. Um, <laughs> we could find cocaine like fucking everywhere. Yeah. You know, but like everybody we asked, like, no, nah, I can get you coke. No, nah, I can get you coke. No, nah, I can get you pills, but never fucking weed. So we didn't smoke any of the pieces, which is important because you can cross the border if you don't smoke out of the pieces because there's no res in it. It's just, uh, you know, you're allowed to cross the border with them. So anyway, my friend who turned 21 didn't want to come back to the hotel that Sunday night. He wanted to keep partying. He stumbled up to the parking lot at 6 a.m., pissed drunk, throwing up as we were getting into the car to leave. So now we're in line at Border Patrol, and I have all this alcohol in the trunk that I'm carrying (laughs) over, all these bongs, and there's five big guys, well, four big guys and a small guy squished into this fucking car, and he's in the back going, I'm going to throw up, I'm going to throw up. I'm like, motherfucker, if you throw up in line <laughs> at Twitter Patrol, they're definitely going to go through our car. Yeah, yeah. not throw up here. You have to wait. Swallow it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then luckily I was able to, you know, I had somebody easy that day, and they put me right through on a Monday morning. I was like, yeah, we were just here partying all weekend for my that friend's birthday. never 21st. happened. And, you know, we were just, you know, here for the weekend. My friend's birthday is today. He's 21, and we're just driving back home. And they were like, okay, and they got us through. 
Um, and as soon as we crossed that border, though, I was like, all right, I'm not pulling over because we're on a short time and I want to get high. So, <laughs> but you can hang out the window. So right. on Niagara Falls, Canada's side, on U.S. side, he's oh halfway God. out the back window just vomiting as I'm driving just, down this long road. Just making a deposit in Canada before he shows up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I know it's, I know how strong their beer is, is what I'm saying. So when you're sipping the end of these beers, look at that. We're, we're going to bring it right back again. Sorry, no, that's okay. I go on yep, <laughs> yeah, so when you're sipping the rest of these beers, you are catching a buzz because it is a much stronger beer than America's beers. Like that, just I a, think it might have been stronger too, because that was back when they had like the short stubby beer bottles, right? Like, um, yeah, yeah. This was like early '90s, right? Because you're yeah. born in '86, like '91, '92, that you're just like, you know. Yeah. And so that makes sense. Um, now, when does it become the point where you're like? drinking more by yourself or more with other people like a party scene kind of deal when i was 12 so, oh, okay. yeah, I was, I, <laughs> yeah. I was okay so 12 what's going on your parents just got divorced they just got divorced and i was carrying a lot of guilt um because you're my, the oldest right? i'm the oldest and my dad was very good at it's almost like he lived right a whole bunch of different lives um where he would he would forget the bullshit that he would tell people right so like you never knew if it was true or what parts of it were true or and it was always way worse than what he actually said so um i held a lot of guilt with my parents divorce because i actually met his um girlfriend who ended up being my stepmom for 16 years before my mom um Right. And it was it was Courtney, you got to keep this secret. Don't tell your mother. And my mom and me are close. Right. And she is like my protector, my comfort, my my good. Right. Um, and so my dad, just because it was like walking on eggshells all the time with Jekyll Hyde, Jekyll Hyde, you never knew who you were going to get. I was terrified to say anything. And so what ended up happening was he was working with this woman. Um, and so they ended up getting together and I went to the kids Christmas party and my dad said, you know, like, your mom's not coming. It's just going to be you. I'm not going to bring Barrett. And I'm thinking, like, what the hell? Why not? Like, it's like Discovery Zone. Like, let's go play and have fun, whatever. And um, I ended up meeting his girlfriend that day. And um, a whole bunch of stuff ended up coming out. And actually, uh, at a family party at our house, all our cousins, aunts, uncles, everybody there, my dad passed out in the bedroom. And I was sleeping in the room. And I heard him talking to somebody on the phone. Hey, baby, this, that, whatever. And I was 12, drunk. Because I was drunk, I was brave, brave. Um, I waited for him to kind of pass out and keep blubbering on the phone and crawled out of the bedroom. And this is back when phones still had the cord and they were hung up on the wall, right? And I pushed speaker. And everybody heard everything. And so that was like a turning point in my life where I was like sick of watching him sift through these women and hurt my mom and hurt my brother and hurt me and I was like I just that's all I just reached up and pushed the button um and the funniest part about it is to this day there are still people who were there that will deny it still exactly what happened and so that's when I started kind of shelling up because I was like you saw this and you're still saying it didn't happen and that was like a reoccurring thing from 12 on 
like be it sexual abuse or domestic violence or whatever, I always felt unseen, unheard, undervalued, disposable. Um, and so when my parents got divorced, that's why I went down so hard so fast is because even though my mom escaped that that violence and and all of it, it was still it threw us into a tailspin. And um, my dad left us in the house with like no way to pay for anything. My mom had a grade eight education um, and she kind of had to pick it up. And I look back now being a mom myself, wondering how the fuck she did it. How did you get through that abuse? How did you sit through that every single day? Not be like, she didn't drink. She wasn't, she didn't have addiction. So she had to sit there and take that. Um, so yeah, it was really, it was really, really hard. Sorry. But like junior high is when it all kicked off for me. And it was like, I played competitive soccer for a really long time. Same group of girls up until I was in my mid twenties. Um, but when I was 12, 13, 14, I started putting vodka in my water bottles before games. Right. And it made me more aggressive. And I thought it made me a better player. And I was like slide tackling people, um, but then you were, like, you were, you were getting your, you were getting your aggression out. Like yeah. I'm, I'm surprised, especially being in Canada, I'm surprised you didn't get into hockey and yeah. where you, where you, could, <laughs> where you could just like hit people and where like, it's acceptable to like have beer leagues. Right. Like, I mean, yeah. it's all I can think of. I follow so many people that are in beer leagues, you yeah. know what I mean? So yeah, that's what it's I, rough. it's rough. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I would have played hockey, but I'm only five feet tall. I was really little. Um, so that would have been a disaster. Yeah, never mind. Just stick to soccer. <laughs> I was only, like, one Vinny Le Cavalier. Like, I was always so, like, you know. <laughs> no, there's more Vinny Le Caviers. There's, there's a bunch of guys that have come up recently that, you know. My favorite, though. Back in the day, he was, like, the only little rocket. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, no, he definitely was, like, the first one, you know, that was, like, um, and he was on the Flyers, too, back in the day. So that's why I know him so well. And then we got Danny Briere. He was also a little guy. Um, oh, Tyler, Tyler Johnson nowadays, also on the Lightning. He's he's only like 5'8". Yeah. Tyler yeah. Johnson. And he's Tyler Johnson is best friends with another dude that's also like 5'8 or 5'9". Johnny Hockey. Yeah. Johnny, Johnny yeah. Goudreau grew up like 10 miles from where I grew up. That's insane. That's so yeah, much in South Jersey. So like Johnny Hockey was a huge name around my area when I was, you know, and I was in high school because we're like the same age. He's got a couple. I think I got a couple years on him. Um, yeah. But either way, like you know, so little guys, you know, they're showing that they can do it. And but Vinny Cavier, he was one of the, definitely the originators of being a oh. guy under six feet that yeah. could hang and just like still, you know, play with everybody else. For Again, sure. another rant. Okay, so we're back. Soccer, junior Soccer. high, you're drinking, yeah. you're aggressive, you're getting your aggression out on the field. Right. So it's funny because I was shy as shit off the field. I couldn't make eye contact with people. I was scared of adults because I thought they were all drunk or going to hurt me. I couldn't trust anyone. And so those girls, because I'd known them for so long, they were like my my backup, right? Like I just, I, the way I looked at soccer was so wrong. Um, but fast forward a few years when I'm like 16, 17 and I'm drinking, like at this point, the vodka is like half and half in my bottle and you could smell it when I'm running down the field, right? Um, I got suspended from Edmonton district soccer for a whole year. I was barred from playing because- The coach got you finally? 
I well, I got into like a pretty bad like the game stopped and it was like a physical someone bit like there was just it was so not, yeah you actually got into like a fight on the field because it of it was ridiculous like there were four or five of us that got hauled into a hearing months after it happened to, to go over it all how um, old were you I was 16 or 17 so it was, um, you were in high school playing soccer in high school at this point Right. And competitively, though, I mean, high school soccer right. is competitive here. It's competitive all over the world. That's why the World Cup is so fucking huge, let's be honest. Right. So, you know, yeah, you're playing this compet and but you're drunk as shit. Yeah. Do your friends, your girlfriends know that, like, oh, yeah, Courtney drinks when she's on the field. Like, so I, I don't that's think why any said. of them knew. I mean, they probably did, but none of them brought it up. Right. I mean, no one. That's what I mean. No one had ever said to you no. one time of like. Are you drinking? Are you are you drunk? Well, What's like, that smell? Man, right? Oh. Like I was I was scoring goals. I was you know what I mean? Like I was still a part of the team where I wasn't getting sloppy and caught. Were you guys winning too? Oh yeah. Like we there was one season we were undefeated. We were doing one goal. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're like, Yeah, we're not gonna but then if you get into a giant fight, now yeah. now so when you get into this fight and now now you're getting broken up by the by the refs and right. the coaches. And yeah. now when you're getting broken up from a scrum, they are in your fucking face. Well, then so, like I told you, I'm did little. They smell? One of them had my feet. And I was like, yeah, that's how ridiculous. Because when I got they mad, right, I don't let my anger out. Anger is one letter away from danger, my friend. So, <laughs> you Tell know, me this. Like, how do they have your feet? Did you like fall to the, were you on the ground? They were just holding well, on like. It's indoor soccer, right? Because okay. Canada is winter, like, eight months out of the year. And yeah. so it's, oh, yeah, anyways, it was brutal. It was like a dog pile. There were people pulling people off of each other. But I do just remember it, my coach having my my ankles, and I had the girl's jersey. Um, and it was just a nightmare. Like, and the thing is, I should have been fucking embarrassed. I should have been so embarrassed. And I came out of there, and you know what some of the parents from our team said? Because, like, they they knew how shy I was good for you girl like you stand up for yourself like good for you but i don't you know are, you, how would you not that i mean are you really that surprised you're in fucking canada you know they, they <laughs> like the fights in hockey like it's like it's a it's a rite of passage i didn't you know? jersey her i did not jersey her so <laughs> you know what i mean like for anybody who doesn't know what she means she didn't pull <laughs> she didn't rip up her yeah that's yeah. what she meant by jersey her if you're not familiar with the term because i know a lot of people like, what did you mean by Jersey? Like, but, oh, but when they're that close to you now, Courtney, are they smelling the vodka on your breath for the first time? Nobody said anything, nothing. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I was pretty, but I mean, nobody's saying anything. I'm not. So the stop. hearing was for the fight and not for the drinking. Right. Because nobody even brought up the, I smelled this or that or whatever. Um, hmm. And so I couldn't play then. Right. Like my only outlet to get my aggression out was taken away from me because I fucked up. So at this point, like I was allowed in the building, but I wasn't allowed in the dressing room on the bench. Um, I had to be watching from up in the stands. Like I wasn't involved in the team at all. It broke my heart. And that was your uh, senior year. You probably missed them. Um, it well, this was a like a outside of school. So oh, I played okay. School and I played for. Um, but that, you know, like three, four times a week, that's what I did. That's how I stayed out of trouble. Uh, and then it gets even worse. <laughs> I 
the girl, the group of girls that I played soccer with for so long, I had the same coach too. Um, and so the same assistant coach, the assistant coach was seven years older than me. Um, so he was 24 when I was 17, 24, whatever. Yeah. I started dating him and that like, it just, that I think for me is when it was like, that's when all the patterns from like the, how do I say this? My, my self hate for myself popped up and it was, um, all about being crazy about boys or jumping from relationship to relationship. And like, I, I had no self-worth and I was looking for it in everything and everybody else. And, um, that when I did that, it was horrible because that was like, like I said, my comfort and it fucked me up because later on I would find out that he had slept with a couple other girls from the team. Um, but I surrounded myself with people like that for a long time. Like, I'm not saying he was a bad guy. He wasn't a bad guy. We were kids, whatever. Um, but looking back, what a massive mistake, right? Well, you, like, were, you were a kid. Right. But you, like, you were a kid. He was 24. But that was, was my kid. first mistake. And if my first mistake is dating my soccer coach, right? Like, it was just a disaster after that. Total disaster. And he didn't question your drinking? Or you did you were you careful about of being... Of course not, because it was good for him, right? Because then Courtney would do whatever. I would do whatever, right? So it's, let's go to practice. Because you did say sex addiction oh. was in your story. Oh, for sure. But it, it was weird for me, because it's like I needed one person. I wasn't jumping from, like, guy to guy to guy. It was like... I would focus on one person and like just obsess. It was, it was very, very sick. Like I would, why doesn't he love me? Why doesn't he want to talk to? It's just all tied to that abandonment issues and the, the feelings of not being good enough. And here's this older guy who has a car, right? Like he has a car, but none of my friends drove. Right. And I thought I was so cool driving around in stupid freaking Tiburon. Um, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> So, so yeah, like it, that, I, I made some mistakes. Um, and when, when my mom got remarried, uh, there was, there were other issues, right? Like, um, my dad was an abuser from like a psychological standpoint, like psychological warfare, yelling, physical abuse, that kind of stuff. Um, later on from the time, like another family member from the time I was, I'd say like 14 until I was about 25, um, was extremely sexually abusive. And so by that time, like my brain was just operating on just alcohol and I had no feelings of self-worth. My confidence was just shot right, you know, to nothing. And I thought that's all I was good for. Um, so it really fucked me up, like really fucked me up. Um, and that's, when the cocaine entered was when that ended because I didn't know how to deal with it. Um, Can I ask a little bit about that or no? Go ahead, dig okay. in. Okay, so and not, not that I want to dig in. I just no, 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 no. So no. you you said fourteen to twenty five, you were being sexually abused by somebody in your family. Yeah. Okay. Now at twenty five, does this person get in trouble for it? No, it's it's one of those things again where I had brought it up. And there was, there was like a, a basket of examples I could have picked from. It wasn't a one-time thing. And it, it was chalked up to my teenage hormones and my reputation 
and my drinking. Um, and so it was never taken seriously and still isn't to this day. We do not talk about it. Um, and so those people are not a part of my life either. Uh, but it took going to rehab and realizing you don't protect yourself, you're going to die. You let these people in and put that poison in you, you're going to die. Because um, they don't yeah. give a shit about me. They get no. what they want from me and then that's it. If you want to look, there's um there I had a, a woman named Tiffany on here. Um, you'll really resonate with her story. Then um, Tiffany is from Canada, Ontario, right. um, and she was abused by her stepfather from three till fifteen. Wow. Um. So and she's very candid about it too. Um, and talks about it really openly. She was on my show a couple weeks ago, and she'll be back on with her husband to talk about her their sobriety in, in February. Um, but her story, you know, kind of reminds me of that, where, like, nobody was, like, taking her seriously, um, except for she deals more with a narcissistic mother who was allowing it. The mother right. knew that it was happening when she was three and was just okay with it. Right. Um, you know, so it's a little bit different of a scenario, but still, you know. Devastating. Yeah. yeah, people just making it normal. That's right. normalizing. If you're three and your mom is saying, no, you can get naked with him, then mm -hmm. you, what else would you fucking know as normal? Right. You don't yeah. stand a chance at that point. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I can totally see everyone and I can totally see the abuser who that person is to go, oh, she's a good mark because she's already a drunk and has a reputation. Right. Nobody ever believe her anyway. Right. And now, oh. now I can see how vulnerable I was, how easy it was to pick that shit out. Um, and it's, it's so weird being on the other side of the fence because it's like a duality of me convincing myself that nobody's that evil, that nobody would do that on purpose, that nobody would, you know. So what made it stop? What made it so it, you knew? Because you had said a little bit ago, you know, that's when cocaine entered. Yeah. Um, so that means something happened. There was an inciting incident that happened to where it stopped and you knew it was going to stop. And now you got into cocaine. Right. So this person um, ended up getting into a relationship and having kids. And so that's kind of when things stopped. And there were a couple times after that that they tried to reach out and tried to see if I was still the same. And I wasn't, I wasn't having it. There's no way it was happening again. Um, I shut it down. And it's funny, because it's like, you think you have no power until you say no. And it's like, oh, fuck, I can do that. You know, and I know that sounds ridiculous. But it's, it's one of those things where I had no control for so long. I didn't know what to do when I finally realized, hey, like, I'm in control of my body. I'm in control of who's around me and what this happens. This episode is sponsored by MJ's Progress Not Perfection Meeting Center Association. We are in our meeting center where we do all these meetings for mental health and addiction. I can do this podcast anywhere. I can do this at home. I can do this in a closet. I can do this in a basement. It doesn't matter. All I need is somebody else to talk to about addiction and recovery. What I can't do from anywhere is help people with their addiction and their mental health problems. So if you can help out, you know, we do have a Venmo, we have a Cash App, we have a PayPal, we have an address you can send a check to. And, you know, all the money that gets donated goes towards rent, goes towards keeping the lights on, and goes towards keeping the internet on. 
So please, you know, if you can get five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, it doesn't matter. Anything you can is so appreciated. Well, if you are a local business, if you're a national business, whatever, and you want to be a part of what we're doing, you know, you can reach out to me and we can talk about how you can be a sponsor. But I'll let you get back to the episode. I can totally see how that would mess you up. You know, nobody would want that from anybody, whether they were a stranger. But it's, I feel like, even worse when it's somebody close to you because, like, you're supposed to trust them. A stranger, you're like, oh, yeah, I don't have to, I don't, I can expect that. You're not supposed to trust them. But somebody that you see in your life, whether it's a friend or whether it's a friend or a family member or whatever extended, you know, whether they're, you just, you're like, you see them as safe and then all of a sudden they're not. So I think that can really fuck you up. And especially if you're already looked at as somebody who is a drunken, you know, slut. Your yeah. words, not mine. But yeah, I can totally see how, you know, all of a sudden now he's not, and how that would fuck you up at 25, 26. Right. You know, did you get, oh, I know, you probably, did you meet somebody else then? Well, at, I, like, was, 20- I was in relationships the whole time, but I was, jumping from guy to guy to guy and it was always like it was like a a one-year relationship and then a two-year relationship and then I dated this one guy who was my cocaine come did the did the cocaine come did you learn or get introduced to cocaine from my boyfriend you were dating no it was a friend okay Um, yeah it was it was my friends but basically what happened was like another relationship had broken down but it was devastating to me um devastating and so I tried to handle it with booze for months and it was just one of those things where I thought I was going to be with this guy forever and you know whatever um I couldn't handle it I had no coping mechanisms my coping mechanisms were drinking and it wasn't working anymore um I was getting so wasted that like I would wake up and be like where the fuck am I like what happened um and yeah, so Coke came in after I, I mean, here's the thing. I was one of those people who would drink and drink and drink, never touch drugs. I was always so fucking judgmental. I was that bitch who was like, why would you ever do that? That's stupid. You'll die. Like the, don't you put it in your mouth? Like, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and it terrified me. And so my friends, I had these two best friends and they um, were into, into Coke and they knew I would never touch it. But because I was in such a dark, depressive state, I was drinking and I just looked at them and I said, fuck it, I'm going to do it. I don't care anymore. And I literally remember saying, I don't care anymore. And it was like something inside of me died. I did a beer bong. I did some blow. And they looked at each other like, oh, my God, Courtney just did coke. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe that just happened. But then every weekend for three years every Friday, Saturday, every single weekend, blow, booze, blow, because it was perfect for me. I was like, oh my God, I don't have to get sick and throw up anymore. I can just bounce between, you know, trying to stay stable and whatever. And it got to the point where like, I'm going to work and I'm trying to do good at this job. And all of a sudden my fucking heart feels like it's going to explode. I started having like panic attacks. I'm convincing myself you know Monday Tuesday never doing it again by Wednesday Thursday Friday I deserve it right like it's it was a brutal vicious cycle that led to me being completely suicidal completely I didn't want to live anymore um 
it, it was horrible. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's what happens is it's fun the first time, maybe even the second, third, maybe even for a year. Yeah. But it hits that corner to where it isn't, and it's like the alcohol, right? Like, this isn't fun anymore. Right. This isn't doing it for me anymore. This isn't fulfilling that void. Because right. that's all we're trying to do is fill voids. Whether right. it's grief, loss, trauma, you know, you're trying to fill a void. Um, right. I It's funny because I equate, I, I, I had a, when I was 11 is when I started drinking, it, but not alcoholically. That was when I was 12. Uh, when I was 11, it was, oh, let's watch a movie and, like, make a mixed drink and, like, you know, whatever. And we would drink, like, Captain and Coke and watch The Outsiders and think we were cool. You know what I mean? Um, it wasn't anything, like, crazy. We weren't trying to drink to forget. Um, that was a year later. But then I realized the other day, I was talking to um, my wife about it. And I realized I was obsessed with, like I said, hockey, we know this, and baseball. I played um, street, and where I lived in Jersey, we wasn't big on ice. Like, yeah, we have Johnny Hockey, and he yeah. found the rinks, but I was a street hockey guy, you know, and, and, and street hockey is huge where I'm from. Yeah. And so I started playing at like three, four years old, and I started playing baseball at three, four years old. And by the time I'm 11, I am now, I'm 5'8". I'm like you, but with the guys, you know, <laughs> you know, 5'8 is like five foot for a female. And, you know, seven and a half. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm 5'7 and a half, and I round up to 5'8". <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, um, so I realized the other day when I was 11 is when people started really surpassing me athletically, right? That's when, you know, people got better at me at baseball. That's when people were getting better at me than hockey. And I wasn't as good. And so I lost that thrill that I would get from the games. I still played the sports in, until 16, 17 years old, um, but I didn't have as much fulfillment in my life from playing the sports because I knew I was never going to make it. You know what I mean? It was around 11 where I said to myself, you're not good enough for majors. You're not big enough for hockey. You're not big enough for this. And you're just, you don't have that athletic. You're, you're talented enough to have fun and play with these guys, but you're not going to be professional athlete. So figure something else out. And I, I don't think that's why I started drinking, but it was the same year though, that I, you know, when I started realizing that sports weren't, I think sports filled that void for me for so long. And when sports stopped filling a void, I had alcohol to fill the void. And then when alcohol stopped working when I was 21, pills filled the void at 22 until I was 31. Right. So that's when something else fills it. And now this fills my void. Yeah. Doing my podcast is an obsession. Right. Like if you talk to other podcasters, they don't release episodes in the frequency that I release. I was saying, when you said July and 100, I was like, what the hell? Yeah, <laughs> I, I just, I released 93 episodes from July 3rd until, or July 7th, my first release date. So from July 7th to J December 31st, I released 93 episodes. Really 94, one got fucked up and I had to delete it. So, but still, like really, ninety-four episodes I released. I did thirty and th I did thirty-two and thirty in September to celebrate Recovery Month, and now I just did thirty-seven straight from Thanksgiving, our Thanksgiving, to New Year's Eve to um, promote, you know, um, relapse and overdose rates spiking during the holidays 
So I release daily episodes 37 in a row to promote. So that's why I got so many so fast is because I did a bunch of clumps. Um, But now I'm back to doing three a week. Um, That's my January and February schedule is three a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Good for you. That's amazing. But it's an obsession. It's so good to remove the toxic behaviors with like, and I never thought that was possible before. I would watch people who would like go to yoga and I'm like, what the fuck? Why is that fun? Like, what are you doing? And now it's like my favorite fucking thing in the world. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Oh my God. Meditation. Meditation for me for the first six months of sobriety. No. I could could not do it. I tried. I would sit in meetings. I would sit in IOP. You know, I don't know if you you guys have IOP, intensive outpatient. It's where you go after rehab. Yeah. Um, That's where we. Continuing care. uh, Probably, yeah. Where you go for a couple hours a day or something like that, a couple times a week. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, I would go to IOP, and there I would have this one dude that would run one of the groups in IOP, and on Fridays, he would want to do an hour meditation, like, guided. And wow. I'm like, bro, that's... <laughs> the the one time I literally, this isn't a lie, I convinced him to let me... I was like, he knew how against meditating I was that early in sobriety. Yeah. And I had a point, and my point was that I'm not even at step 11. And I don't even know how to meditate yet. I'm still working right. through my shit. My head is still fucked up, man. Right. It's been 20 years of drinking and using. I got to, like, work through this shit first. Yeah. And so finally, after we had a one-on-one talk about it, you know, he would let me put headphones in and not do the guided meditation. And so one of the guided meditations, I literally sat there. It was June. And what is on in the middle of June, that is a big event. That's something I would love. Yeah. Um, fucking yeah. NHL draft. So I'm watching the NHL draft while I'm in IOP on my phone, just like, you know, everybody's meditating around me and I had my headphones in, I'm watching the draft. And that's like what I used to do is like, I I always wanted to be, so when I was playing soccer, I was in phenomenal shape. Um, I worked with my dad doing concrete construction. Like I, it was, I was really, really good with fitness. And then when things took a turn, I started gaining weight. And then when I started gaining weight, I thought it was going to be like, it would keep my attacker away from me, but it almost made it worse. Um, because he's like, Oh, like you've got boobs now. Like it was the stupidest shit. You know, you think you can control it, but I was trying to control it by like destroying myself. You know what I mean? Um, I just, man, like looking back, I just can't believe the shit that I thought was okay. And the stuff that I thought that I had to go along with, because another thing, sorry for getting off topic, but Another thing that is huge with the Indigenous community is respecting your elders. You do what you're told and you don't talk back. Um, And that, I mean, was something that really hurt me too because, I mean, the things that we were being asked to do, we shouldn't have had to do. You know what I mean? Like there are certain things that's like respectful, like respectful, but then there's people who take advantage. And if they're in a position of authority when you're younger, like, what are you going to do? Right. So my head was just like chaos all the time. And when I started meditating is when things started to kind of, I would, I would see it from the other side. I would see it from the healthy side, but it would break me and heal me at the same time. Right. Because you would look back and go, girl, you're so freaking dumb. And like, not even just dumb, but like, you know, not like sad and just like, Oh, and then you you look back and you just want to like you want to hug yourself and heal yourself, but at the same time like you're mad at the people and you're mad at yourself and 
it's it's just brutal. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you worked your. I don't know if you work steps or if you're a step person like I am. Um, but when I did my step four, which is all about resentments, my list was primarily against myself. My list was seventy five percent was a resentment against myself for one thing or another through it the years of addiction. Like I wasn't resenting or blaming really anybody for what I put myself through. Yeah. You know, so most of my resentments were against myself. And then when I got to, you know, do my amends, it was really easy because I already had a list. I, yeah. I went to my, you know, reasons I resented myself. Now I'm going to apologize for why I resent myself. Right. You know, I'll make amends for these resentments. You know, I hate myself for stealing money from this person. I guess I should apologize and make that right. I hate myself for doing this and lying to this person, manipulating. Let me apologize and make that right. And yeah. it's a way. So, like. People think doing the steps is like bullshit and has everything to do with alcohol, but it doesn't. With working the steps, you know, only step one is it says alcohol. That's it. And the rest of the other 11 steps doesn't mention the word alcohol one time. Um, and that word alcohol is interchangeable in the steps. I constantly work the steps because there's constantly things that I need to work on that make my life unmanageable. Right. So, and that step one is all about that unmanageability. So when I find things that are making my life unmanageable, I then work the steps on that thing. I'll I'll put whatever it is into there for alcohol. I'll take out the word alcohol and I'll work the steps on whatever that is that's making my life unmanageable. Right. Um, because that's that's what it's there for. It's a way to have a better quality of life. Have you um so in your rehab, you know, we'll get to that now. Yeah. We'll catch up. So you know, three years, you're broken. Yeah. <laughs> Relationship hopping, you're doing coke, you're drinking as much as possible, and you're trying to keep up appearances of being functioning, of having your own place, and having, you know, like, oh, yeah, Courtney's fine. She's just in her 20s, and she parties. It's fine. That's what you well, do. Like everybody around me, I felt like was on the same level. You yeah, know what well, I mean? It's like what we said earlier about that averages thing, right? Well, right. The person I talked to, that was saying that, you know, she's the average of people that she's around. Yeah. And, you know, it's like that same theory of who you're hanging around with, that they're co-signing your bullshit. And if they're like, yeah, I'm doing the coke with you. Yeah, I'm drinking drinks with you. You don't have a problem because I don't have a problem. Right, right. So what is it that makes you finally, like, say, like, I have a fucking problem and I need to do rehab? So this involves a hockey game. <laughs> uh october to, 10th is the beginning of the season usually yeah like i well it was the rock bottom the beer at the games we call them crack beers because they're huge you have one or two and you're done for the whole night um i went with a friend of mine and had like three or four which is like intense and then because you're so wasted i didn't want to go home and go to sleep i wanted to go to the bar so we went downtown after the game and man, something happened. I don't know what happened. That was the last time that I went to a bar it was uh, me and my friend got separated. And I remember going to the bar, ordering another drink. And then I got really dizzy. And then I kind of remember blips, right? I remember little bits and pieces. Um, but what happened was I ended up, uh, I woke up sandwich between a garbage bin and a wall behind the bar so in the alley um and when I woke up 
I felt like my, I just got my ass rolled. Like I had bruises all over. Um, I fucking didn't even want to take a deep breath because I didn't know. Ugh, yeah. Anyways, I kind of got up and I stumbled out into the alley and I fell again. And luckily two people who were walking home who weren't, you know, dangerous, um, found me, helped me, helped me get home. Um, but that's when I was like, holy shit. And I mean, like things like that had happened before, but not to that level of where I was like, I didn't know what happened. I had no idea, like not a fucking clue. Um, and yeah, so after that is when the depression spiraled, like I didn't know how to handle it. I was dating someone at the time. Um, and he, he's my son's father and, uh, like helped me (sighs) when I was depressed. Like I couldn't even get out of bed. I didn't want to shower. I didn't want to brush my teeth. I didn't want to eat. I was done. And I kept saying in my head, I'm fucking done. I'm fucking done. And um, I had to go see my doctor who sent me to a psychiatrist who for the first time diagnosed me with complex PTSD and major depressive disorder. So I had those two diagnoses going into treatment because she said, like, you got to do this. Um, I was lucky enough that my employer paid for my treatment. There's so many people that don't go to treatment because they can't fucking afford it. I was lucky. Or they're Um, afraid of getting fired. They're afraid of losing their jobs. Right. And, you know, I'm not sure about Canada's laws, but they, they do protect most most people in America, you're protected that if you go to your boss first, it's important that you go first because it's you admitting you have a problem. But if you go to your boss, um, I had an uncle that passed away a couple of years ago from alcoholism, um, but, you know, he, he was an alcoholic and, um, you know, uncle, cousin, he's like a third cousin. You know, I called him uncle because he's my mom's age, you know, kind of deal. Um, but anyway, I remember when he had a problem before and he knew his, his employer found out and he was going to get fired. So he went to them before they confronted him and he said, Hey, I have a problem with alcohol and I I need to go into treatment. And they paid him, you know, um, FL, FMLA, you know, family medical leave absence in America. He got paid to go to rehab basically. And right. then still had a job waiting for him when he got out of rehab because he came to them first right. before they confronted him. So yeah. is that kind of how it worked for you too? That's exactly how it worked for me. Cool. Um, I was working for uh, the University of Alberta. Um, so I, I had a really good job. Uh, but the people that I worked with were not so great, not so welcoming. Not like, There was a lot of bullying in the workplace. Um, and... I was not welcomed back. Uh, They didn't know why I was gone, why I was sick, why anything was happening. Um, But I do remember, like, this just bothers me because it's it's a lack of empathy with people now that really bothers me, right? And they're everywhere. But (laughs) the one guy that I worked with uh, was talking to me about this guy um, who was a longtime employee, longtime coworker of his, um, and was just talking about him in such a disrespectful manner. And it was all about mental illness. And here I am sitting here wanting to kill myself, right? Like I was driving to work to the office every morning, trying to tell myself, don't drive into that pole or I'll just drive. Like, you know what I mean? It was that bad. Like I didn't even want to go to work, but I needed money to live. Um, Did you watch my story? Because I literally would talk about that is how like I would 
in the last two months of my addiction before I went into rehab, I was picking trees. Yeah. And I went on rainy days, I would go and get cigarettes and I would take the drive back and like, oh, this rain, I could do it. And yeah. they don't think it's an accident. Yeah. And every time I didn't, only because my dog was at home and I was afraid that nobody would find her for a while yeah. and she wouldn't be able to go out and she was too good of a dog to go inside, oh. to go to the bathroom inside. And I didn't want her to have to go through that. That's the only reason it I never drove. So great. Like, but, but yeah, that's, that's how bad it was. And here's this guy talking to me about a coworker of his that he's been seeing every day for 12 years. And this man had serious mental illness was off work, right? Short-term disability, long-term disability, whatever. The day before he was scheduled to come back, he killed himself. He died by suicide. And I fully believe it's because of that environment, because he was going into a place where, I mean, this man had kids. He had a wife. He was a person. You know what I mean? And so I knew their mentality looking at stuff like that, and I never told them. I never told them what happened. I never told them what's going on or anything like that. Um, but that's the shit that pisses me off. That's why people fucking die. Um, anyways, <laughs> so so my, my doctor uh, sends me to rehab. I go in, and I'm still painfully shy, painfully shy. Were you um, willing at least to go to rehab at this point because you were so broken? I was, but I didn't think I needed it. I thought it I, – I thought – I thought it would be like, okay, well, I'll just go and see what happens. Right? But yeah, you weren't, I mean, it's not like you were withdrawing every day, right? right. It's not like you're doing, you know, because ex, ex, like cocaine, you don't really go through, you go through psychosis, but not really met, like physical withdrawals. Like I felt like I had the flu every morning because I was on opiates every day for a decade. Yeah. Like so I would wake up literally, shakes and you were just shakes. But yeah. not, not, not to that level. Yeah. Um but it was it was really scary because I remember because everyone in my life had seen me like that for so long. And a lot of the people in my life were drinking and had seen that stuff, too. It was looked at as overkill by a lot of people. And I'm talking about like my close, close family. I remember right before I went into rehab, we all had a dinner and there was still booze there. It was really hard for me. Um, and we did a cheers and I had like a Sprite. And they were drinking like booze. Cheers to your sobriety. And I like looking back now, like I know they meant well, but it's like the the difference, right? Of like your environment. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But um I went to rehab and honestly that was the hardest fucking thing I've ever done in my life. I was always one of those people who would start something and never finish it. Um and then I'd be mad at myself forever, like lost opportunities and I was never good enough or whatever. Um, I woke up every single morning in that place trying to think of a reason to go home um, until about the halfway point. And the fucked up part about it is like the day before we left, I cried. I didn't want to leave. Um, so, yeah, it saved my life. hundred percent. How long did you stay in there for? I was in 29 days in a residential and then I was in sober living for two months. I was in a inpatient for six weeks um, in Calgary. So 42 days. Um, and I yeah. wanted to go on to more treatment, but my work was like, you got to get back. Thank you. Got um, so yeah. yeah, but still yeah. that's good though. I mean, six weeks. So you're three weeks in, um, what is, 
Okay, can I ask about the rehab? Is it a 12-step rehab? Are they taking you to meetings and stuff like that? Like It is an all-women's facility because they okay. had a shit ton of sexual trauma to deal with, and there's no way I could have done that in a co-ed environment. No, um, not a chance. Not, not, no. Absolutely not. Especially right. with how horny the fucking guys are early right. in sobriety. Right. Well, yeah. and, that, and, and to be fair, the, <laughs> women? To, to be fair, to be fair, the women are just as fucking horny in, right. in early sobriety. We yeah. all are because we're all feeling things for the first time again that we've been yeah. numbing for so fucking long. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's not like there were so many people. I was in a co-ed one and our co-ed one was really fucked up because it was a house in L.A. And oh you wouldn't God. even know that it's a rehab and you're walking by it if you just don't know. It's just a house. Yeah. And, you know, there was like, you know, 16 bedrooms, you know, but all we had was one door that was between the guys and the girls side. Oh my yeah, God, there was just one door and it locked only at 11 p.m. But all you had to do was walk outside and walk to their other door and then walk into that door because that was oh, always. Oh, yeah, unlocked. no, we were like, we were locked down. We, no, was, we yeah. had we had somebody <laughs> that would watch us overnight. We had an overnight person. Oh, yeah. Um, and he was pretty chill. He would always be out back smoking cigars and I would chill out back with him because I have insomnia. Um, so I would hang out with him out back. Um, but always the overnight staff would hang out on the woman's side. Because just to make sure no guys were creeping over to that side, right. because so many people were getting kicked out of my rehab. Even when I was in sober living, I would go back to the rehab a lot just to go to meetings and stuff like that or see old yeah. people or, you know, be of service right. and um, or get rides to meetings because they had the dopamine limousine. Um, <laughs> and I would walk over and hop in there. And but, yeah, there were so many people I got kicked out for fucking so oh, yeah. it is a really, you know, we call it 13 step and, you know, but that's a 13 step. I didn't even step. know what that meant until this year because well, I didn't, I didn't yeah, do 13, Yeah, that is for more or less actually people with time. That isn't really new in sobriety. That is 13 stepping is usually somebody that will come to you and be like, oh, I'll be your sponsor. And they'll have like five years of sobriety. And really, they're just trying to fuck you. Yeah. Like, they don't really care. Like, they're, you know, yeah, it's, there's a whole documentary called 13th Step. Um, yeah. Wow. It's on Tubi. It's an app, T-U-B-I. Um, but it's all about, like, some of these women telling stories about being 13th Step and, like, somebody almost died. Somebody, That'd be devastating. Because you're, you're, you have to deal with it 100% sober. Sober. Yeah. Right? It's not like you put yourself in dangerous situations on purpose when you're sober. Um, and this one yeah. girl that was telling her story, um, she, the guy that was 13 stepping her, still let her live there and was feeding her dope every day. Gross. Yeah. He was sober. Yeah. And getting her high just so he could keep her there. Right. Yeah, I've had relationships so like up. that. It's really fucking horrible. <laughs> yeah. So I'm so glad you went to an all women's. But did yeah. they take you to meetings? So the first three weeks, you're not allowed to leave the building whatsoever, but the meetings would come to us. So they would have speakers come in um, and it was all like AA based. Yeah, and that's then, how it was for us too. Right. Like halfway through is when they would let us go out to community meetings. Um, and I really liked refuge recovery because of the meditation. Um, I tried everything, smart recovery. I just kind of dipped my toes in everything. Um, and yeah, like when I left rehab I had 
these sober friends and like you feel like you can just do fucking anything oh that was the change you you said it halfway through is when you it started turning for you so all of a sudden now you're getting out and about and you're three weeks sober and you're meeting these other women in meetings that they're not just in the house with you but they're like-minded and they they're like that makes a lot of sense. You're going yeah. to the, especially like refuge recovery and like smart recovery. Those are more like, you know, um, what do they call like therapy sessions where everybody's talking. Right. Um, I'm blanking on the word. Um, no, I somebody, got you. Somebody's yelling the word into the radio right now, but um, <laughs> cognitive behavioral therapy, I think that's what it is. Yeah. CBT. It's yeah. basically that kind of therapy where it's like group therapy and it's really mm-hmm. fucking helpful. I love that kind of like cross talk. Well, I loved refuge because there were a lot more people there that were also dealing with sex addiction and also dealing with gambling addiction. And those were my two, like, dude, I was making bets when I was eight because I grew up at the track. Like my dad had harness racing horses. And so I would like lean over the fence and be yelling at the horses and like not really knowing what I was doing, but I would make picks. Like I would do sports select and pro line and you were um, off track betting like with my dad. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, like picking like trifactors and boxes and stuff like that. And um, like my my alcoholism and cocaine were fucking big problems. But gambling and sex were too. Like they went hand in hand with the alcohol and the coke, but I still had to deal with that too. And you don't really dig into that in rehab because there's like a fucking mountain of shit that you have to deal with on top of it first. Right. First Um, step is getting the drug and the drink away. Right. And then yeah. once you get that away, all right, now let's dig into the why you were using that, you know, yeah, where that came from with that obsession. So, but the first step is like, let's just take this away from Courtney first, and then we'll let her sit for a couple of weeks, and then yeah. <laughs> we'll yeah. do it more. Right. You know, what if? So now, what do you do? You know, in the last five years now to stay sober. So. These uh, last five years have been, like, incredible and the hardest of my life, too. Well, yeah, you had a baby in sobriety. You got, you know, you got, if my math's correct, you got pregnant two months sober. Two years sober, I mean. I got sober the year before I went to rehab. So went to rehab, got out of rehab in, like, the end of June and got pregnant in November. Um, and so I was like, my son's dad, um, and I had been together for like eight years and he was really supportive going through rehab, but when we had kids, things changed. Um, and so the last three years have been extremely hard, but I've learned a lot. I don't know how, to be honest, how I've stayed sober because you guys have multiple kids. Just one. Okay. I, have a, I have a bulldog named Dexter who's like my son, but <laughs> um, sorry, I'll back up. When I got out of rehab, I adopted my dog, my rescue dog, Dexter. And so that was like a month out of rehab. Um, two months later is when I found out I was pregnant. And so I didn't really have a long time in my sobriety to figure out like who I was as a sober person, what my identity was. I kind of went straight from that into being a mom. Um, like stayed sober, didn't relapse, but was going through a lot of shit. Um, I had my, my solid girls from, from my rehab who I stayed in contact with my sober sisters. Those people became like my family because, you know, like you're, you're in there every day talking about like the deepest, darkest parts of your soul and you're sharing it with these people. Um, so they became my sisters 
And it's so funny. You, you do. That's exactly like I consider somebody a sister to me still. And it's really and, you know, she was like my little sister in there. And yeah. it's so funny. We, we consider each other within two days of knowing each other. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's because we can also really get that kind of relationship with somebody quickly because there's no technology around. Right. No one, we're not looking at our phones and talking and being distracted. We are and we are getting it's just like you and I are talking now. It's just like how her and I would talk, like having well, cigarettes yeah, you know, outside the rehab and getting to know each other. Right. And I was from Pennsylvania and or I was from Jersey and Pennsylvania, like and she was from Virginia, not far from me. Mm-hmm. And now she actually dates somebody and lives with them. And it's like 15 minutes from me in Pennsylvania. But yet we met in Los Angeles, 3000 miles away in rehab. Shit, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, she's still my little sister. But yet we consider each other that within a fucking week of knowing each other. Because right. you get those bonds and you get yeah. that you're together all day long, every fucking day. And you don't have a cell phone in front of you. You the have no choice. That, like, you know why that person is the way they are. And you understand from a non-judgmental standpoint. You understand from a place of yes. love and wanting to heal yourself and heal yeah. the people around you, right? So it's that's so the, yeah. first, like, yeah. the first kind of like oh my god there's real people in this world who do like you know nice people who will actually love you unconditionally for nothing in return other than you just being yourself because those best friends you did coke with they they weren't knowing how broken you were they knew how messed i was um no but i mean but you didn't talk to them the same way as you talked to the girls in rehab the messed up part is they like they knew about my traumas and everything and like I tried to go there with them and the cocaine is what you know the heart to hearts and the that's the only reason why we liked it was because we were telling each other we loved each other and this and that whatever and when it came down to it you know I always had relationships with takers take 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 I was the caretaker that makes sense um, actually though because yeah. remember I said that girl Tiffany from Canada to check out yeah she said you know that 15 years old was the first time that she really opened up about being sexually abused by her stepdad. Yeah. Um, and it was also the same night that she did cocaine for the first time. Those feelings are fucking hella heavy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like literally her episode starts off with her saying how her and her brother did coke that night. And then she started telling him about everything that, ha- that has happened. Wow. Yeah, and like it was from doing the co- and then she loved the coke because it able to it helped her to open up, right? And for the first time, well, so. and that's like there were some things that I hadn't told a soul, um, until rehab, uh, and I mean like I can talk about it now. You can edit it out if you want if it's too much, but um, my dad was so sick and so unhealthy that there was a point where, when I was living with him, I was monitored. And I didn't know there were cameras everywhere. The phone was tapped. And of course, being 16, 17, people are going to think you're crazy. My dad was the kind of person, you know, narcissism. Everybody loves, why would anyone hate that guy? He's so nice. He does so much for others and la da 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 da. They didn't know that side of him. And the devastating part about it was I didn't know that these images or anything, nothing like that existed until years later. Um, and so, I mean, that's just kind of like scratching the surface. Image, images, like, 
Like mm -hmm. I was being recorded. Um, there were cameras in the bathroom, in my room, in the living room. My dad was a tech guy, um, worked for a cable company. Uh, and I remember like, you know how they always tell on themselves or they'll accuse you of something that they've done already. And yeah. I remember this, this one time him telling me, and it was the weirdest thing, like out of nowhere. Did you know, Courtney, that you could put a camera in the wall that's the size of a, like a pinhead needle and no one would ever know? And I was young then. And you know how these people, they step it up, they elevate their game, right? It gets deep, dark, ugly, unless someone tries to stop them. Never, no one ever stepped up to my dad, ever challenged him ever. I did. And that's why we don't talk because I brought up all of it and it was too much for him. Um, so the first thing I did when I got into rehab, I took these post-its. I had these two roommates, two, both of them like straight from the prison. So I was like, you know, but now I know the only difference between me and them is that, you know, they got caught and I didn't. And so I walk into my room and I'm like scared shitless and I'm putting post-its over these holes in the wall. And they're like, what's wrong? It was an anxiety. It was a trigger, right? Now I can handle it. But back then, like this little, you know, putting post-its on the wall, like what's this crazy bitch doing? And so, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's it's that stuff that you hold down that just eats you fucking alive, right? Um, and as soon as I got to talk about it, it was just like, that's what cracked open for me. Um, because I was like, if I can talk about that, fuck, I can talk about anything. Um, and then they couldn't shut me up. So like, it was awesome to just be able to get it out. Yeah. Now, do you want me to take that out or do you want me? No, can I you keep can it, put in? it in? Okay. I'm totally fine with all that. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. that's that's part of your story because that is a trauma response. It's huge. And it's yeah. a huge trauma response. And even in addiction to see little holes, you know, mm -hmm. and people talk about triggers being like, you know, talking about drugs or seeing drugs. That, to me, that's not a trigger. No. To me, it's the things that only trigger you that are specific to you. The you memory know, of that the, moment, the smells, the people, the, the even the music that's playing. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I think every so, so like triggers are such a tricky topic for me because I feel like it's such a broad range of things that and, and you know people can be triggered by the sound of a can cracking. Right. I've seen people talk about that where like a can cracking is a trigger for them. That's a I basic people day, crack cans all the time. It is not, you know, when I open like a ginger ale or a pop or whatever, I take the key tab and I twist it to the side. And I didn't even notice I was still doing that until like a year after rehab. I was like, oh, because that's what I used to do with my beer. That's how I knew it was my beer, right? Yep. Um, the stupid things you never think about. But yeah, and yeah, for years, exactly, yeah. it'll still happen. New ones happen to me every year. And I'm like, that's fucking weird. Um, yep. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> if you look at my show's description, it's yeah. a trigger warning for everything. Because yeah. in my opinion, my show can be very triggering. The shit we talk about can be very traumatizing to hear if somebody has been in your shoes before. Right? That's how you heal. You got to yeah, talk shit. That, exactly. And that's why it's important because the person that's triggered by it, there's also somebody that's healing by it. Right. So, and I, I can't know if you're triggered by the sound of a can cracking. Right. I can't know if you're triggered by a song or triggered by you saying you played soccer. That could be a trigger yeah. for somebody, you know? Right. So that's why my entire description of my show is, the entire thing is you know, yeah. you know i want to laugh i want us to laugh while we do our episodes right. i want to find 
There is light in darkness. There is light in darkness. And the further you get away from the darkness, the more light shines on it for you to laugh at it. It's harder. It's like too soon. When someone dies and you're like, oh, that's too soon. Or Titanic jokes or World War II. Or you're like, oh, too soon, bro. Like, you know, too soon is basically the same kind of idea. You know, Mm -hmm. the further you get away from it, though, the easier it is to make jokes and laugh about it. 100%, 100%, right? And when you do, that's that healing. That's where right. you heal is in that laughter. And that's why it was so hard for me is because I would get to the point where I would want to open up and if someone would shut me down or not hear me, it was devastating. And of course, they're not going to know that. That's not their responsibility, right? But it was it was so hard for me to speak up. It took forever for me to find my voice, forever. Um, and yeah, like I, I just think it's so important to like, being coming out of rehab and dealing with real life because life is always going to happen people are going to die bad things are going to happen you can't control everything yeah Um, i mean you're you're going to break up with your son's father in sobriety right like uh i'm assuming that you guys aren't together anymore and you co-parent it's a very challenging time for me right now um you want to talk about it yeah okay talk about how you're how you Let's let's end with how are you doing nowadays with, you know, we all know that there's a pandemic going on. We right. all know that, especially in Canada, the lockdowns are way more strict than they are in the United States. Right. Um, the restrictions are crazier up there for good reason. They should be here, too. I wish they were, but they're not. You know, you guys are doing it right. Um, so the lockdowns are doing what they're doing. So it's a lot more isolating. Um, so less contact with people. You got a three-year-old um, that you know has special needs. You said, yeah. He's so that's that's yeah. yeah. So that's extra stuff that you're working on. Right. That's something that's new for you every single day. There's something new, and you know how are you getting through today without drinking or drugs and <laughs> going through like kind of a weird breakup relationship thing with somebody that's been your life for eight nine years. Right. Um, I'm going to start if it's okay, like right after rehab and just run through it quick. That's all right. Yeah, let's do it. He was really good for me, but I met him at a really low point in my life. And I don't like talking about this because I mean, obviously right away it's you idiot. But, uh, um, I met him because he was selling drugs to my friends. So when you asked me who introduced me to Coke, I said, my friends, but he was supplying them, right? And so I was in a really bad place. I was doing drugs, and here's this guy who's like, I looked at him like he could protect me, and he was safe. And, like, I hate those, like, saying that stuff, but it's true. And he was a really good person because for the first time in my life, I thought that he was, like, looking after me, cared about me, la-di-da-di-da. Right when we started dating is when I wanted to stop doing blow and I told him I said I can't do this if you're like you're killing my friends you're killing me like look at this this is ridiculous and so he got his first legit job um like six months after we met each other and so here I am if I can change you can change right and um like he's he doesn't deal drugs anymore but there are a lot of traits that have popped up that are very reminiscent of what my mom went through with my dad and very reminiscent of what I went through already with my traumas. Um, I've accomplished a lot since rehab. Like I 
graduated from university with an occupational health and safety degree because I thought that's what I wanted to do. But now I know I don't want to be the safety nag and I want to help people in recovery. So I well, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. So I'm I'm in school. I've got six months left because I want to be a counselor. Um, so I'm trying really hard to get that done. But uh, when my son was born, it was really hard because I don't think that my son's dad was ready. My ex was ready to be a dad. And we never talked about that. I I thought he was ready. We were going to get married in July, but our baby was born in August. So we canceled our wedding and had a baby instead, right? And I took on, obviously, the mom role, but it was everything. I was waking up with him, feeding him, changing the diapers, doing everything. My ex didn't do anything, didn't bathe him. Um, and I know that sometimes postpartum depression happens within men and stuff like that, but this was different. Uh, and it took away from our relationship and our relationship was based primarily on sex. And it was a currency basically for me being where I was like living in the house. I wasn't working because I'm the mom. Um, and things got really dark and really ugly. And I honestly do not know how I stayed sober, but I look at my little guy every morning and I'm like, I cannot let you go through what the fuck I went through. I cannot fuck this up. Like I, I can't, he's my responsibility. You know what I mean? And so what happened was after, after all the, like my, I'm thinking I have this, you know, amazing life. And I, I have this house. I own a house for the first time in my life. Oh my God. I never thought that would happen. Um, I, I never thought I deserved to be a mom. My dad, something that he always said to me was I would be a horrible mother. And so I grew up with that mentality. Um, it's something I really had to work on. And so I tried really, really hard to do the best I could to be the best mom I could. And that's really what I focused on. But when it got to the point where sexual abuse started happening and spousal rape started happening, um, the gaslighting and manipulation was so close to what I experienced with my dad that it's it's triggered me hard. Um, I didn't relapse. I don't know how. I've lost three of my five group members from my rehab. One of them was murdered. One of them died in a car crash. And the other one died waiting for a liver transplant because of alcoholism. And I had no support because the person that I was with was emotionally unavailable and going through his own stuff. And so I sat in it and I swirled in it and I had two people that I would talk to from my rehab and I thought that was a good support system. So my son, fast forward, he turns two. I'm in the backyard with all our family and friends thinking, fuck, like, thank God. I'm so grateful. Thank God. Like, even though I have problems, this is what I wanted. I used to pray for what I have now. You know what I mean? Why am I feeling like this? Um... Two days later, and like you can take out whatever you want. Two days later, um, my ex calls me. We're still together at this point, And he says, I don't know what to tell you, but I have syphilis. And I was like, you know how science works, right? Like, you know how this works? Like, he didn't know. He just told on himself, right? Um, and so because I was so tired from looking after my son and doing it all, um, when I would say no, he would get very angry and this is like like holes in doors and bent towel racks and yelling and so finally one day I just said no I can't do it I'm dying again I started to feel that depression again but sober and so 
Um, it hits a lot different when you're sober, right? It's fucking hard as hell. Yeah, Especially when, when you mentioned the COVID. I had been isolated already for so long. I mean, it made a difference, but I, I had been isolating for so long. I didn't really talk to anybody anyways. I was used to it. Um, and so when he told me that, that devastated me because this relationship was the one that I didn't fuck up. This was the relationship that like I did everything I could um, and everything right, I thought, right? Um, and it took me, like this just recently, we split up. So it was 18 months of me trying to fix it, of me wondering why, right? You go back to how do I fix it? How do I um, make this better? It's me, it's me, it's not fucking me. It never was me. <laughs> um, and it just kills me because like he had to tell me that doesn't just happen once. And I'm not gonna speculate, I'm not, it doesn't matter. All it has to have, like, you know, come on, that's fucked up. Um, but he ended up admitting to me that when I said no to sex, he literally left the house, went to a massage parlor. Right. Um, and so seeing my value through his eyes at that point fucking shattered me. Um, and that's when I started to think about myself more. So this last 18 months, I feel like I've gone through like a fucking rebirth. I've been burned to the ground and I'm, just kind of out of the caterpillar goo phase and starting to feel like myself again. You know what I mean? Is that when uh, you started posting on Instagram more and being more like vocal about your sobriety? Like that's how we met. So was, this April, know. this April was when it was just for 24. Um, I saw it all over Instagram because for a long time I'd been posting, I'm sober, I'm sober, yay me. Like, you know, but I wasn't part of a community. Um, and so I started to feel suicidal again. I started to feel depressed again. I started to want to use again. And that's when I was like, oh, fuck, like I need to do something. And so I went to Just for 24. The connections that I made that day brought me here. Saved my fucking life again. Like definitely saved my fucking life. I'm not even joking. Um, I've got an amazing support system of people from all over. You know this community. It's a beautiful thing. Um, you can look for the deep, dark grossness in Instagram and find it real quick. But like, this is like the hidden gem. You know what I mean? These are, this is people supporting people. This is love. Um, it's on TikTok too. Yeah. I, I, my TikTok is all curated. Like seconds, it scared me. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, I've curated my TikTok basically to show me all recovery stuff. I only ever hit like and re and comment and react to recovery based like videos yeah. And if it's not recovery based, I some I mostly block the account and just to tell TikTok not to show me that anymore. Great. And so by doing that, it basically now has curated me to see all this mental health and recovery based posts. And I yeah. find people to interview all the time on TikTok and I find people on the Instagram community. That's how we met. The yeah. Facebook community has a bunch of really cool groups too that you know that you you know people you know talk in posting yeah. it's really like it's really fucking cool and i think that a lot of that has been because I, I didn't know about any of this since the last like six months but like i know a lot of these popped up because of covid and they couldn't go to meetings anymore and they people needed that outlet and they needed that way to connect with other people like we are yeah like when i had when i had giovanni my son um i wasn't going to meetings yeah. Right. I was a mom. I was not sleeping. I wasn't even showering. Like I was gaining weight like crazy 
But if I looked like shit and I smelled and I whatever, it didn't matter because I had a happy kid. My house was clean. And my husband was taken care of. That's all I gave a fuck about. Yeah. Um, but now I realize how much I fucking neglected myself. And I thought I had to do it myself because like he he was he did not want to help me. Looking back, it wasn't everything else that he said it was you know what I mean and it, it's just so hard for me because being someone who went through everything that I went through to realize now what I was sitting in and what I was making excuses for um and just putting myself through hell again for what well, you know well what I mean? it's a yeah and you know what it's a new year oh yeah fresh start you right. know you got out of it just in time Right. And I would probably, you know, if I was to be the type of person to make suggestions or give any kind of tips, I would say wait a bit before the next relationship. Oh, hell. <laughs> thinking about it, like, honestly, this like, year was so my, hard. My rule is if you spend eight years with a dude, you need eight months. You oh. know, you need a month for every year you were, like, with this person in your life. Well, you need a month to recoup. It's like... I have been on my own. Like I see myself as a being on my own for like 18 months because I am looking after myself. I'm taking myself out and doing what I want to do. I'm not creeping on anybody, talking to anybody because for the first time in my life, I'm comfortable with my company. I'm comfortable with being alone. I'm happy when I'm alone. That's how I grow. That's like, you know what I mean? Um, And so friendships are more important to me now than relationships. I'm realizing I had it backwards the whole time. Like you feed the friendship, right? Um, and if it turns into a relationship later, whatever, but I'm not focused on any of that shit right now. Like this year was absolutely brutal. My grandma, who is like my person, um, when my dad left, my grandma stepped up as like my second parent. Right. And she passed away from cancer this July. And, uh, oh, it was so hard. So hard. I, uh, I always hear people say like, at least you got to say goodbye. At least you got to say goodbye. And like, I'm grateful as fuck that I got to say goodbye to her sober. There's something about saying goodbye to somebody and knowing you're not going to see them again in the physical sense. Fuck. Like, and being sober through that. So fucking hard. Um, But I had the recovery community to help me out. I, oh, it's been a hell of a year. I know, I know what you mean though. Like, I've had to say goodbye to somebody, and I had an idea that something bad could happen. Right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. with my my I call her my ex fiance, my late fiance. Um, she committed suicide July two thousand sixteen, July two thousand fifteen. Um, we were to get, it was a month before we were going to be three years together, um, and we were also childhood best friends, and. When she was saying goodbye to me, I knew, like, I just had this weird, you know, like, I had to move to North Carolina for work. That's when I was living down by, you know, the hurricanes. And um, I had to go down there for work. And she was supposed to come down there in a month. And once she got a therapy situated and all that, because she was bipolar, schizophrenic, and an alcoholic. Right. And And I'm a drug addict at the time, functioning drug addict. And she is an alcoholic who is not functioning because she's bipolar, schizophrenic, really bad. Right. Anyway, um, and when she we were saying goodbye to each other for me to go to North Carolina, she was trying to give me the ring back. And I kept saying, no, like, I don't, this is for you. This is your ring. Like, it wasn't even an expensive ring. Like, you can, even if we broke up, I, you can try to throw it away. It's like, it's not, <laughs> I want to want it back. Yeah. Um, and I just had this weird, like, 
feeling in my gut that she knew I could see it in her eyes that she was never going to see me again. And because like I could, there's something was so different about it. And then um, I'd never seen that before. And I, when, when she did do it, she, I, she did it the third day that I was gone in North Carolina, like two weeks later. And um, when I was, you know, going grieving hard that week, that had happened, um, I found the ring in my dresser underneath the shit. Like, she stuffed it in my dresser that night. So she knew, yeah. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I I threw it away because I couldn't. Well, of course, yeah. I I, I, I think I threw it away. I'm an alcoholic. I I don't know what I did with it, honestly. It might even be in a box with all of her shit somewhere. I moved 31 times in addiction. Holy shit. And through five different states, you know, and so, like, I, I lost a lot of shit over time because, like, when she died, I was still three years away from getting to clean. Oh, okay. so, yeah, I wasn't. I spiraled way fucking bad after that. Um, but I just, yeah, so I totally get it. I, I totally get that 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 saying goodbye and that that feeling of, like, knowing that that person. I think that's what it was for me was knowing seeing the look in their eye. It would that was what what I feel is Great. she was looking at me like she was never going to see me again. Mm-hmm. I could see her right now. You well, know then it's like I mean? you were picking up on like her intuition too, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, it's... and I'm sure with your grandma, you were saying bye to her. You know, that's somebody who raised you, and that's somebody that's you know. She was my person because she was the only one to ever believe me with everything and she was the person that like I would call when I like she was my coping mechanism right and so I think it's just like is that your dad's mom my mom's mom okay and so July 12th is my great-grandparents wedding anniversary my mom and my stepdad got married on July 12th and July 12th is Giovanni's birthday and my grandma passed on July 12th So they share this day in like a weird, twisted kind of, you know, beautiful, heartbroken kind of thing. But I know she was proud of me. And I know that, oh my God, I would never survive any of the shit that I'm going through now if I was still in active addiction. Like you look back and you see the puppet strings of like your higher power, God, whoever it is for you. And it's like, you had to go through that because there's no way in fuck you'd be strong enough to deal with this shit. You know what I mean? And so I really now, the way I used to think, it was everybody's fault, Um, you know, nothing wrong with me. It's I did those things because of X, Y, Z. And now it's like, no, like, get a hold of yourself. You know what I mean? You control yourself. You create your reality. You can have whatever the fuck you want as long as you fucking put your feet on the floor and you move them, right? Like, action. You got to fucking move. Um, Because for a long time in depression, I just felt trapped felt like I couldn't move. I felt like I was paralyzed. I didn't want to do anything. I was scared of scared of success. Self-sabotage was like my thing. Um, and so this year, I everything started coming together for me because I was focusing on myself and really doing the inner work. And um, after Graham died, I uh, like I, I did relapse for the first time in five years. I drank a bottle and uh, it didn't lead to cocaine. I learned a lot. I was fucking devastated. But as I'm drinking, I'm like, this is fucking disgusting. What the fuck am I doing? 
I don't need this shit. Like, you know what I mean? And so I was devastated. And I woke up the next morning pissed that I'd thrown away almost five years of sobriety. But holy fuck, did I learn, you know, like now that I know, I'm not going back to that. It's up and up and up from here. You know, now I feel better. Now I know I can do it by myself. Now I'm motivated as fuck to do whatever I want. Right. Um, And it, it took a long time. But like, I'm finally where that negative self-talk doesn't happen. I literally tell it to shut the fuck up and it burns up and turns into something positive. Like my mantra when I was in rehab, I had to do this to get through the day. I had to look at myself in the mirror and I would say, you're strong, you can do this. You're strong, you can do this. And I would repeat it over and over and over again. But that was from a victim a victim mentality. That was from a broken Courtney. That was from alcoholic Courtney. Like I'm still an alcoholic, but now... <laughs> Now it's like, instead of I am strong, I can do this. It's like, I'm fucking powerful and I can do anything. And there is such a difference between those two things, right? Yep. Yeah, 100%. Now, now, and your lapse, because I don't consider that a relapse. I, I consider that a lapse. Prolapse, uh, yeah. Like, there's a lot of people that have that, you know, where they do something once and they're like, wait, I I regret that completely, and I don't want that to count, DC. Like, I don't want right, to... Right, yeah. So is that basically what happened? You had one, you're like, wait it a minute. It happened, but it's everything that led up to it and after it that fuck, like, I need to hold on to because I stopped going to meetings. I started isolating. I started feeling sorry for myself. The yeah, self came back. Um, now, when you did this, was this also July 12th? No, it was in October. It was oh, in okay. early October. Um, right before all this stuff with my, my ex got finalized, um, because it, it left me in a position where like, yeah, hold on to your date. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because in five years, you're, you're really going to laugh about that one time five years ago. I hope so. No. And and (laughs) you do learn from it. And that's the thing is you're supposed to learn from it. You know, like today is the first, you know, this episode's out much later, but today's the first and today's just for today is about being vigilant. And being self-aware, you know, vigilant is just being self-aware. It's just being aware of the people, people, persons and things around you, Mm -hmm. you know, and when you are staying in vigilance, you know, and living your life like that, you're going to not go around certain people or do certain things. You need to be, you know, you need to learn from everything that you did and be pay attention to it and take inventory on it and, you know, try to find your, you know. You know, hundred yeah. percent. And the confidence that I have now, oh my God. Like I, I would have never done this ever in a million years. I would have made excuses to be like, I can't put my camera on, I'm gonna do a pre-recording and I'm gonna send it to you. Like, do you know what I mean? And so I went from this person who like couldn't make eye contact, couldn't take a compliment, couldn't talk to people, to like telling everybody about my problems and you know what you can do it too. Yeah, um, we've been on for an hour and forty five minutes and right. it's, you know. <laughs> That just goes to show you what, like, ugh, word vomit that can come out when you finally oh, get yeah. comfortable. Like, uh, yeah. because there's some people, and, you know, like I said, I've done this a couple times now when, and and there's a lot of people like yourself where I'm the first time they're telling their story. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, besides rehabs, but they've never, right. like, told it in long form before. Mm-hmm. And so, and a lot of them will, they'll say to me, like, I'm so glad I did it with somebody because, like, we get on these rants. And then, oh, but yeah. to bring them back and to circle and back. I'm the worst for like baby brain, ADHD, and insomnia. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> you know? and I, and I, and yeah, like last night I slept four hours, and it's the most I've slept. You know, at one point this week I was up for 72 straight hours. 
Oh, that's gross. Like, and the rage that comes with that kind of insomnia is fucking real. Um, like, to the point where my mantra is, do not hurt yourself, do not hurt yourself, do not hurt yourself. Because I usually want to slam my hand into concrete walls so that I get in so much pain that I pass out. Yeah. You know, and I'm not a rageful guy. Like, my kid is seven. He's been in my life for two years. I've been in his life for two years. Um, you know, my stepson and he's at our house five days a week. He's at his dad's on the weekends. Yeah. He's never heard me yell in two years. He knows that I don't scream. Yeah. You know, I talk to him like he's 25, not like he's seven. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Like, I'm like, Dominic, let's have a sit down. Let's talk about this, buddy. Those you know, let's, let's big, talk. Like, they're smarter than us anyways. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't, I don't know how to do baby talk. My wife knows this. I don't know how to do the baby talk. I know how to talk to somebody like they're a man or what, right. like an yeah, adult. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, you know, and I think, like, he actually likes that because, like, he doesn't get, he doesn't try to match it. If I was to scream at him, then what's he going to do? He's going to scream fucking back or he's going to cry louder than my screams. Right. What is the point? You know, so that's what I mean. I'm not, you know, the guy that's a yeller or the aggressive person that wants to hurt people. But when that insomnia is so bad that it's like, you know, when you have severe insomnia like I do, if I get three, four hours in a night, that's like somebody getting eight, nine in the night. Yeah. You know, three, four for me. I am good to go all day long. I can live on three. I live on three, four. That's my average. Um, But when I go two, three days straight without a wink of sleep, it's fucking maddening. So that happened to me this week, too. That's how I ended my year. Uh, Finally, I got some sleep yesterday. I got like three hours during the day. I passed out at like 1030 in the morning. (laughs) <laughs> and I slept until like one in the afternoon. And then I I came into the office and I, I have a tortoise here, a Russian tortoise in my studio that I take care of. So yeah. I came in here to take care of him. And then my one friend's like, hey, I, I can still record today. And I'm like, OK. So I hopped on a call like yesterday afternoon because I got three hours of sleep. So that was like me getting eight. <laughs> it's just, yeah, you know, naps really. <laughs> I live on power naps. It is what it is, but I find ways to manage it and I find ways to figure it out. It's always going to be different. I don't need to get drunk or high over it because getting drunk or getting high is not going to fix my insomnia. It's going to make it worse. When I was on Xanax and when I was on opiates, my family thought I was dying when I was asleep because of how bad my sleep apnea was. Right. I don't have sleep apnea and sobriety, but it sounded like I was dying from sleep apnea and addiction. So my heart rate was so slow from it. Um, But I'll let you go. Thank you so much for telling your story. I appreciate you so much. Thanks for letting me word vomit. I hope it made sense and I wasn't too freaking spaced out. Like I'm always all over the place. Like pew, pew, pew. You did a good job like ringing me back in. Um, 